it really changes the intervention, right? If you're trying to help somebody with repetitive control around food and you assume that they have body dysmorphia or that they don't like the way they look or something like that, then you're not really appreciating the way that the food itself is driving the consumptive behavior for individuals for whom food is their drug of choice, which gets into the whole idea of drug of choice, that there's enormous inter-individual variability in terms of what stimulates your reward pathway versus what stimulates mine. Now, in general, intoxicants are reinforcing for most of us, you know, like cocaine or stimulants are reinforcing for most people who take them. Not everybody, but most people. Nonetheless, people tend to have their drug of choice, that thing that once they start, it's very difficult to stop. And as you know, mine happens to be socially sanctioned pornography for women, which is the romance Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 117. And this episode is with the lovely Dr. Anna Lemke, who it was such a joy to speak with. And Anna did her undergraduate work in the humanities at Yale and her medical training here at Stanford, where she is currently professor and medical director of addiction medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and she is also Program Director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. And as I say at the end of our conversation, while so many of the episodes of this show are quite abstract and others technical as well, it is very nice to occasionally have episodes that are much more down to earth, which is just where this one lands. So Anna and I talk about her latest New York Times bestselling book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which is all about the epidemic of addiction in the United States, though it extends, of course, albeit to a lesser extent to other countries. But more particularly, we talk about the neuroscience of addiction, So just what happens in the brain when someone develops an addiction, what current social and cultural conditions are contributing to increased rates of addiction, and how all of these factors and addiction itself ought to be combated. And this episode was not just insightful for me about the state of the country and other people's addictions, but also my own many addictions to food, uh, work, exercise. I've, I've got a bunch, but I'm sure that we all do. So Anna is also the author of Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, uh, which sounded the alarm on and covers various dimensions of the opioid crisis. And of course, there are links to both of these books in the description. So let's see what else I should say. There's the Discord, which you can find through my website at robinsonerhart.com. And then you should also leave comments and reviews. And the point of that Discord, or at least one point, other than chatting with all those geeselings, is... If you want to leave feedback or tell me guests you'd like to see on the show, I always like to take that into consideration. And now, I think without any further ado, 
I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Anna. Are you already working on the next book? Um, such a good question. Um, so I am thinking deeply about writing something, but I have a lot of trepidation about it because it's about spirituality and it's just oh, and so hard. Got it. Yeah, it, hard to do as an academic because you're worried about whether you'll still be taken seriously. Is that, that a little bit? Um, but that just, I think just hard to do, you know, something so amorphous and tangible. There's been so much written. What, what I always, you know, doubt myself. What really do I have to contribute? Nothing is, you know, what the answer comes back as. But then, you know, I thought that about dopamine nation and it seems like it, you know, resonated and helped people. So then try to quiet the doubting voices and move forward. Also, it's great occupational therapy for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, maybe that will figure into how we get started. But in in 2016, you published the book Drug Dealer MD on the opioid epidemic, which I don't have to tell you, and which was part of the, the it's first- It's remind me, I'm getting older, so I appreciate that. Sure. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, it was part of the, the first wave of calling- the attention of the medical community and the world at large to the crisis. And since today we're going to focus more on addiction in general, which is the subject of the most recent book, Dopamine Nation, I couldn't help but wonder when I saw that you did your undergraduate degree in the humanities at Yale, how it was first that you ended up in psychiatry and second, why addiction happened to become the major focus of your career, both as a practitioner and then now your side gig as a, a public facing individual yeah so great questions so actually the the distance between being an undergraduate major in humanities and being a psychiatrist is not that far i would say if there's one medical specialty that dives deeply into the humanities it is psychiatry um which which is why it really at the end of the day called to me but I was resistant to that. Um, initially, I went into pathology where I thought I would discover sort of things that are black and white, no doubt about it. You look at a cell, it's either cancerous or it's not, and discovered really quickly that that's not the case, that there's really nothing that's black and white, and that even our so-called you know, wet science or bench kinds of cellular analyses are filled with questions and ambiguity and problems with the frame of reference. So, um, and I'll just add to that, that, um, you know, I have a very close relative who actually had a manic psychotic break while I was a medical student at Stanford. Um, she was admitted to the psychiatric ward. And so my, my whole life is sort of this sort of like shying away from the thing that I should do and then realizing it and coming back to it later. So, um, Originally, it really resisted psychiatry because it felt too close to home. I felt like I wouldn't be able to tolerate it. So almost went in the opposite direction of sort of like a vo avoidant coping mechanism. Thought, I'm going to do pathology, cut and dry. I'm going to be, you know, a teacher of science. And then discovered it was not for me and also quite boring for me. Um, so went back to psychiatry. And the same thing with addiction. So I have alcoholism in my family. My father was a surgeon and also a high-functioning alcoholic. 
when I started my clinic here at Stanford, I said, I'll see anybody, but just nobody with addiction. And then the intake people came back to me and said, well, Dr. Lemke, there really isn't anybody like that. So good luck. Um, there was also a, a patient that I had that I was seeing for psychotherapy. And she and I talked at great length about every conversation she'd ever had with her mother, but I never once asked her about drugs and alcohol. And then one day out of the blue, I got a call from her brother who said she's been in a rollover car accident. Um, I said, oh my goodness, that's terrible. What what happened? And he said, well, she's been using again. Using, using what? Like I literally didn't even understand the form of the sentence. Um, and he said, she's been using heroin. Isn't that what you've been treating her for? And, you know, it was like this moment of terrible shame where I realized, wow, I'm actually a bad psychiatrist. Like, I have I have hurt this person because of my ignorance. So that was really a transformative moment where I thought I need to learn about addiction and I need to figure out how to help people. And what I discovered is that when I asked the questions, patients were very eager to talk about it. So we have this idea that patients won't tell us the truth about their substance use problems and other addictions. But in fact, they're very eager to talk about it in a safe place if you create that space for them. So that's, that's essentially the story. Okay. Well, uh, a couple of things. At first, I'm wondering if the connection, uh, you said the humanities are, are somewhat close, actually, to psychiatry. And I'm wondering if it is because, I mean, just to take literature, for example, I mean, the, per the propensity of great fiction writers to dive into characters and psychology. Is that what you were getting at? Well, absolutely. I mean, you've tapped into really what is the unit of study in psychiatry um, and psychotherapy. It is the, the narrative, right? The, the way that we relate lived experiences, the way that we construct causality based on narrative. I have spent my entire professional career listening to patient stories you know, one patient at a time. So that's my unit of study. My unit of study is one human being at a time. And my vehicle for understanding them is the stories they tell, what they say, how they say it, how that narrative changes through time. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right. It's all about stories. It's funny. You know, I think I could have, I, I mean, I was talking to my mom as I was reading this book. And my, I, I guess I didn't mention before we started, my mom's a psychiatrist. And I was telling her that as I was reading Dopamine Nation, it was clear to me that you had a penchant for fiction. Uh, and then, of course, I saw that you have an addiction to romance novels. But but what I meant is the way that you write about your patients. I mean, you flesh them out like an author does their characters. So like Jacob, who I will probably never forget uh, with his addiction to masturbation machines, which was uh, quite uh, fascinating to read about. Uh, but maybe we should dive into some of the material then in the book. And I thought that a great place to start. Uh, you write in the beginning that scientists rely on dopamine as a kind of universal currency for measuring the addictive potential of any experience. And the more dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, the more addictive the experience. So what I was thinking is that at the outset, uh, hopefully this isn't too pedantic or boring for you. We just go over some of the vocabulary so we have our, our basics in mind 
before we get to the specifics. So I was going to ask what what precisely is dopamine and what is the brain's reward pathway and how dopamine functions in the same? Great, great questions. Great to lay the foundation. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are the chemicals that bridge the gap between neurons. That gap is called the synapse. Neurons are the long spindly cells in our brains that conduct the electrical circuits that make us you know, think and feel and all of that good stuff, but neurons don't touch end to end. There's a gap between them called the synapse that allows for fine tuning of those electrical circuits. And that gap where that synapse is mediated by neurotransmitters, dopamine is one of many neurotransmitters. Um, dopamine has multiple functions in the brain, but one very important function is that it mediates pleasure, reward, and motivation in a specific area of the brain called the reward pathway, which broadly speaking consists of the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, and the prefrontal cortex. Ventral tegmental area is rich in dopamine-releasing neurons that are then released in the nucleus accumbens. Those are these deeper structures, what we call the limbic brain or the emotion processing brain, which in turn communicate with the prefrontal cortex, which is a gray matter area right behind our foreheads that's so important for delayed gratification, autobiographical narrative, appreciating future consequences. One way to think about these different parts of the reward pathway is to think about the uh, ventral tegmental area and the nu nucleus accumbens as the accelerator in the car, prefrontal cortex as the brakes, and addiction as either a problem with the accelerator, as in a lead foot on the gas, a problem with the brakes, as in the brakes aren't working, or some combination of both. Hmm. This is just coming to me right now, but I, I recently uh, spoke with the neuropsychologist Mark Solms about the foundations of consciousness, the the neural foundations of consciousness, which he thinks come from... Well, I'm not going to even try to say which area of the brain it is, but it has to do with uh, the brainstem. But affect is really what's most important about consciousness. And one way we can tell whether lower organisms are conscious uh, might be to see whether they enjoy things like cocaine. If they go back to cocaine over and over again, then we have some reason to think that they're feeling something. Which... Interesting hypothesis. Um, I mean... I'm not going to venture into the whole consciousness thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a quagmire. But what I can tell you is that in the work that we do, uh, affect and emotion are very important. And there's a very famous psychoanalyst, now deceased, Michael Franz Bosch, who um, famously said, um, when you're in, uh, in psychotherapy with a patient, follow the affect, which I love because it's like a, you know, the, the, contra to follow the money. Um, it's follow the affect or follow the emotion if in interacting with patients. There's an expression of emotion. Um, that That's an important thing. It's a little nugget of gold. Dig deeper there. You know, you're, you're headed in the right direction. I find that's especially true working with um, men in Silicon Valley who, just to grossly overgeneralize, tend to be very much um, living in their kind of rational brain and have more difficulty connecting to their emotions. So a lot of that is kind of like cracking through the ice of rationality and trying to tap into the emotions and get more connection to the emotions. And certainly a strong belief 
that there's a lot of truth and wisdom in our emotional lives and that, um, you know, we shouldn't deny that. Mm -hmm. And then I, I suppose this is one of the last, I mean, it's a big thing that I also have to ask, and that is what or how do you define addiction? So addiction broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. There is no blood test or brain scan to diagnose addiction. It's based on what we call phenomenology, which is patterns of behaviors that repeat themselves reliably across individuals, cultures, continents, uh, time periods. When we diagnose addiction clinically, we base it on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is kind of like the, um, the Bible of making diagnoses. But it's important to recognize that it's really just a bunch of people sitting around a table saying, wow, I think that this disorder manifests in this way based on the science, critical observation. Um, so the same thing is true for addiction. And the 11 criteria for diagnosing addiction, according to the DSM, um, can be condensed into what we call the four C's, control, compulsions, cravings, and consequences. So out of control use, compulsive use, meaning a lot of mental real estate occupied with the drug, and a level of automaticity around it, uh, cravings, you know, intense intrusive thoughts or feelings of wanting to use, and then finally consequences, especially continued use despite consequences. So bad things happening as a result of this behavior, but uh, nonetheless, the individual keeps using. Sometimes that's because the individual doesn't see the consequences, but even when the individual appreciates those consequences, um, cannot stop using. Yeah, I was wondering if there was a clinical way of distinguishing between positive and negative addictions. And I suppose the the most important of the four C's there would be consequences, because I imagine you can be compelled maybe to do something that is healthy. Uh, but and then if it but if it doesn't have negative consequences, then we might not want to think of it as an addiction that at least one that needs treatment. You know, it's a great question. When I use the word addiction, I'm by definition talking about, I am by definition talking about pathophysia. I'm talking, sorry. When I use the word addiction, I'm talk, I'm by definition talking about a mental health disorder. And if I'm not talking about a mental health disorder, that is something that has crossed the threshold into being harmful and consequential in a negative way, then I usually don't use that word. I know, you know, in, in everyday speech, people will kind of use it casually. Oh, I'm addicted to X, Y, or Z. But but in general, when I use that word, it means that that it meets some threshold criteria for being um, a psychiatric disorder. But it can be very difficult to distinguish sort of a healthy passion or an intensity around a behavior um, and something that's maladaptive. For example, workaholism, right? We have a culture that strongly um, encourages and reinforces um, compulsive working. And we don't call that an addiction um, because our, our culture celebrates it. But really, it's meeting many of the same types of criteria, which is why I think addiction is actually so interesting to study because all mental health disorders are biopsychosocial diseases. There's a biological component, psychological component, and a social or contextual component. But addiction more so than others, I think, because we're constantly redefining 
what's a legal drug? What's an illegal drug, right? What is adaptive use? What's maladaptive use? Yeah, it's also interesting. I, I think we'll get into it later, but this social dimension is for you a very important element that needs to be considered when you're undergoing treatment. Uh, it's very important for treatment, for recovery, but can also uh, promote relapse. And I guess actually maybe this is where we should start in the sense that the social element also is a risk factor for addiction. And I'm sure you talk about this much more in drug dealer MD, but accessibility probably has to be one of the biggest risk factors of the all for addiction. Yeah. In fact, that that is sort of the central message of Dopamine Nation, right? This idea that in the modern world, we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction because we have so much more access than ever before in human history to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And even seemingly healthy behaviors like reading, in my case, or playing games or exercise have become drugified in the modern world such that even those have become potentially addictive. And that's essentially the premise of Dopamine Nation. Um, it, it seems self-evident that if you have increased access to um, a drug, you are more likely to get addicted to that drug. But believe it or not, it's a risk factor that people commonly forget. Um, and it's one that I really want to bring you know, back to the discussion and, and raise awareness around because it has a direct impact on our lives today because we are so saturated with these kind of dopamine releasing substances and behaviors. And then, but there are other factors as well, right? So I th you write about how leisure time and the rise in poverty have also contributed to addiction. How does, how do you see that working? Yeah. So there are lots of risk factors for addiction. It's long been known that poverty is a risk factor. Unemployment is a risk factor, severe stress, uh, multi-generational trauma. Um, those are all risk factors. Co-occurring mental illness is a risk factor for addiction. Growing up in a family where um, substance use or maladaptive addictive coping uh, is modeled as a risk factor, um, you know, uh, attachment problems with caregivers are risk factors. So there are lots and lots of risk factors. But the risk factors that I think have not garnered en enough attention in the modern world are access, quantity, potency, and novelty. So what I'm really trying to emphasize is that our brains evolved over millions of years of evolution to approach pleasure and avoid pain reflexively. We do that without even thinking about it. It's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. But our brains were not evolved for substances and behaviors that release a lot of dopamine all at once. And we are reeling to try to compensate uh, to these highly reinforcing experiences and as a result, we are all getting caught in this kind of hedonic treadmill or addiction vortex. Mm -hmm. My, I mean, I probably have many addictions. Definitely workaholism is one of them. But the, the salient addiction given, uh, I think you said, access, quantity, novelty, and potency is uh, my, my food addiction. And that is, uh, you talk a lot about, maybe not food so much in the 
in dopamine nation, but how market forces <laughs> contribute to addiction. And I think of like the snack industry, way, way more access to what I, I'll, I, I guess I refer to them as treats. Uh, the quant the serving sizes are much bigger. The potency. I just actually had some, some ice cream bars from Japan and the level of sugar was so much so much less than what we get here and then the novelty there's i mean new things for me to try every i've had you might not believe this this is crazy but i have had uh, a different pint of ice cream every day for the past two years it's like a, yeah. a hobby yeah, yeah I, 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 I thought i saw something that you eat a pint of ice cream for breakfast is that right uh, more dinner right now, and I've also gotten into ice cream novelties. Okay. So today is Heath Klondike bars. But, okay, all right. But yeah, the I guess in this case the market forces are helping my uh, pastime. But yeah, so exactly right. Um, our food supply has become drugified with the addition of fat, salt, sugar, and flavorants. Also, our access to these highly potent food sources um, means that it's very difficult to maintain appetitive control because these do function like drugs in our brains. Once we start eating, it's very difficult to stop. We don't reach that normal level of satiety um, that we would if we were eating, if we had been hungry, had to work for our food, and then you know, ate the equivalent of um, broccoli or you know black beans and rice. Um, there is, um, for example, a movement now that's called mindfulness eating with this idea that, you know, if we're just appropriately mindful about our consumption, we wouldn't have these obesity problems. And I'm like, I'm all for, you know, mindfully eating. But for, for people whose drug of choice is food, um, that's not going to work because of the environment that we're living in and the way that food has become drugified. Also of interest there's a movement now within the field of mental health to reclassify eating disorders as food addiction. So right now they're classified under their own separate category of eating disorder, um, but there's a strong movement to really think about food as drugified, to acknowledge that it, we don't have appetitive control in the current ecosystem, and to think about uh, eating disorders as you know, aberrant eating or disordered eating as a result of the drugified food supply. And I'm working with colleagues around the world to try to do that. Why do I think that's important? Because it really changes the intervention, right? If you're trying to help somebody with appetitive control around food and you assume that they have body dysmorphia or that they don't like the way they look or something like that, then you're not really appreciating the way that the food itself is driving the consumptive behavior for individuals for whom Food is their drug of choice, which gets into the whole idea of drug of choice, that there's enormous inter-individual variability in terms of what stimulates your reward pathway versus what stimulates mine. Now, in general, intoxicants are reinforcing for most of us, you know, like cocaine or stimulants are reinforcing for most people who take them. Not everybody, but most people. Nonetheless, people tend to have their drug of choice, that thing that once they start, it's very difficult to stop. And as you know, mine happens to be socially sanctioned pornography for women, which is the romance. Yeah, that was uh, what I was going to get into next. Or maybe we, maybe you don't want to talk about that, but oh, that's fine. I thought that we ought to go over maybe one 
case study or so just because I think the going through like one peculiar maybe uh, addiction better exposes the pathology than talking about it in a more abstract way. We might connect it to the four C's that you brought up earlier. Yeah. Sounds good. Do you want me to talk about my own? um, Sure, 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 sure. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, as I said, addiction runs in my family, but um, my early experience with drugs and alcohol, my early experiences were neutral or negative, meaning that I never found alcohol to be a euphoric or a relaxant. It just gave me tired and gave me a headache. Um, Caffeine doesn't wake me up. So in general, I just sort of assumed that the addiction gene had skipped me and that I, I just didn't have that problem. But in my early 40s, when things in my life were going really well, so it wasn't like, you know, I was looking for some sort of magical escape. Um, A friend of mine recommended uh, The Twilight Saga, which is a teenage vampire romance uh, series of novels, which I just sort of read because I've always been a reader and that's how I kind of, you know, reward myself or recreate. And there was something about that that was incredibly transportative for me and uh, really reinforcing. So I read all the books and I read all the books again and again. And I found that by the fourth read through of all of the books, it was enjoyable, but not as enjoyable as the first time around. So I went looking for more ram- romance novels. And to my surprise, for whatever reason, I hadn't discovered them as a younger woman. Um, I discovered a whole universe of romance novels. Like there were lots more vampire romance novels. And then I moved on to werewolves and necromancers and soothsayers and crystal workers and, you know, you name it. I'm particularly curious about those necromancer. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, and this is where technology interfaces with this problem. My friend Susan said, oh, you know, you should get a Kindle. And that way you can just download them. You don't have to go to the library. So I did, and I got I got an e-reader, and that's when things really got problematic because as soon as I finished one book, I could get another. Um, I, I sort of accelerated to chain reading. There was this anonymous element where nobody could see what I was reading, which allowed me to kind of hide the behavior. Um, I found I was spending more time, more and more time reading, and slowly and insidiously what happened was that other things that I prioritized and valued in my life and enjoyed, I stopped prioritizing, I stopped valuing, and importantly, I stopped enjoying. And my focus became very narrowed on this one activity. I put a lot more energy into it, was spending a lot more time doing it, um, to the point where I was staying up very late at night reading, tired the next day, had difficulty focusing, was taking it on vacation, hiding in a room, not socializing, I was reading, and that at one point was even taking romance novels to work and reading in those 10, 10 minutes between patients, you know, which was probably like the nadir for me. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You can laugh. It's all good. Um, <laughs> we've all had our addiction. Yeah, nadirs. we've all had our things, right? But, but you know, again, I'm like, I'm a psychiatrist. I treat addiction. And I didn't really see it as it was unfolding. And what I especially didn't see was the way that my pleasure or joy in other things um, became uh, less, that that my other experiences were impoverished. I had this narrowing of my focus. Um, I had a kind of over-reliance on this one behavior uh, as my great escape. 
and then ultimately developed tolerance, meaning that I needed more potent forms. So, you know, no longer was it teenage vampire romance novels. I was reading freight pornography, um, you know, pornography not consistent with my values, stuff that I was basically be ashamed for other people to know I was reading. Um, and then my sort of moment of awakening and awareness, which is so key with any addiction, is when I um, had to do a role play with a psychiatry resident where I was the patient and we were practicing something called motivational interviewing. He said, is there a behavior you want to change? And I said, let me see. And I thought, well, I guess I want to change my late night reading habit. I did not go into the details of what that was. This is a young man. That would have been very embarrassing. I, I wouldn't have even been willing to say it to anybody at that point. And then, you know, he said to me, well, is there is there one thing that you feel like you could change in your life to, you know, to change that habit? And I thought, well, I could get rid of my Kindle. I think that would slow it down. And the next day, you know, this was all just like a role play. I wasn't really thinking about doing this. But um, the next day, I couldn't unsee it, right? So having said it aloud to another human, I was like, you know what? I really do want to change that behavior. And I think I really will try to do that. And I think I will get rid of my Kindle. And then from there was sort of this process of trying to get into recovery, which turned out to be a heck of a lot harder than I thought it would be. Hmm. Can you explicitly connect what you just told me to those four C's? Because I feel like that's something that people should, even if they're not diagnosticians, maybe they should just yeah, be more aware of that. Health. Yeah. So yeah. the control piece is using more than intended um, or for longer time periods. So um, basically I had unlearned how to go to sleep without reading romance novels and also a behavior associated with that, which I will leave to your imagination. Um, and what happened was that every single night I would say, I, you know, I would wake up in the morning and I would say, I'm not going to do that tonight. And then come the nighttime, I would read much longer than I planned to. I would say, I'm going to, I'm going to stop at the end of this chapter. Really, I'm going to stop at the end of this chapter. I would get to the end of the chapter and I would read another chapter. So that's a good example of out-of-control use. Um, compulsive use is just like a lot of mental real estate thinking about it. And we often rationalize this by saying, oh, you know, I'm really into, uh, like, so at, at one point I was reading Fifty Shades of Grey and I kept rationalizing that this was like a modern day retelling of Pride and Prejudice. So there were ways that I was trying to compare what's really just pornography to, you know, literature and people do this all the time with things like alcohol. Oh, I'm learning, you know, these craft beers, or I'm really into wine and into the bouquet, or, you know, I'm really into ice cream flavors and like all these different flavors that I like. Um, and, and like, again, that also may be true and not sign of an addiction, but it can be a way that we sort of use up a lot of our brain time um, sort of focused on that. The compulsive piece is, um, you know, related to all this, but it comes up I mean, sort of the the craving piece comes up mainly when people try to stop. And so what I did with the romance novels was I committed to not reading or doing the related behavior for four weeks, which is this kind of dopamine fasting intervention. And I'll never forget that first 10 to 14 days. I would come to the end of my day, you know, do all the chores for the family, this and that. And then the time would come when I would normally get my reward or my escape or, you know, our brains are kind of like little alarm clocks when it comes to dopamine. That was my time. And I had intense cravings, like very overwhelming desire to want to use that behavior. And, um, you know, I was trying not to. 
but the the extent to which it sort of grips all of us, mind, all of ourselves, mind and bodies is really impressive. And then the consequences part, especially continued use despite consequences, um, the, 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 the very common consequence that people often don't see without help is the ways in which this continued pursuit of this pleasure actually leads to more suffering for us in the form of irritability, anxiety, depression, insomnia. Um, and I was experiencing that, right? Like, um, I have a great family, and yet I was getting less joy from my family life. It was consequential in that I was not getting enough sleep, right? And I really care about my patients, and yet I would be bleary-eyed at work. So, you know, fortunately in my case, those were pretty mild consequences. Um, you know, so I would say it was a very soft addiction. But, of course, in my clinical work, I mean, people die from this problem. Um, this is life-threatening you know, in, in, in some instances. Well, the consequences and pain in general is something we'll get to in a moment because it's in key to the entire framework of the book. But first I wanted to go back to when you began answering my question about the, the vampire romance novels. And you said things were going well at the time and you weren't looking for an escape, but I'm curious whether that whether now you think that that was just how you felt consciously at the time, but in retrospect, you realized that there were underlying problems or stressors in your life that contributed to the addiction that you weren't aware of. I'm not trying to turn this into your own therapy session. No, you know, that's a really fair question. I guess what I would say is um, a little of both. So on one very real level, I had and have a very privileged life. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate in my marriage. I'm very fortunate with my children. I'm very fortunate in my work. Um, there really is no significant stress or trauma. Um, and, and I think that's an important point to make. And so I make it you know, loudly and often because many times patients want to look for the why behind the addictive behavior when the addictive behavior is really its own explanation. It doesn't really need a why. Now, having said that, it is also very true that um, stress is a contributing factor. Trauma is a contributing factor. Um, when people are in you know difficult life circumstances, it's natural that they return to a substance or behavior to try to escape. So I'm not trying to minimize the causality there. I just want to emphasize um, that there doesn't need to be a reason. And even if there is a reason, if we spend too long there, we can sort of get lost. A lot of what we talk about in addiction treatment is actions before feelings. So to do, you know, to do the behavioral change before you feel like doing it, because if you wait till you feel like doing it, or if you wait till things are better in your life, or wait till you're not depressed, or wait till you've resolved this relationship, um, you know, the the actions will never come. Um, but, but, you know, certainly in retrospect, just to get back to really what your question was, yes, I could identify some specific things in my life primarily around the fact that um, my life was entering a transition phase where I was going to have to give up something I really liked, which was being a mother to, you know, smaller children. And my kids were entering adolescence and I was going through a kind of a grief reaction around not having more children 
and having to deal with teenagers, which was much more challenging for me than, um, you know, raising young children. So kind of a mourning around that life change. Yeah, well, the the reason that I ask, and I think you brought it up and got to it, is that, like you mentioned, sometimes there are causes of an addiction, but in other cases, there doesn't need to be a reason. Because as with the euphorians you described earlier, like cocaine or meth, I mean, availability in some cases can be sufficient for the addiction. You can have no underlying problems, but if, I mean... If, if I had no underlying problems, if you started giving me injecting heroin every day, I would just become addicted. So looking for the why isn't always going to be a useful exercise. That's right. I agree with you. Okay. Okay. Good. Great. <laughs> and then moving on, one of the topics in Dopamine Nation that I found most fascinating was the degree of pain that people report and how it varies from country to country. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the research behind this sort of surprising phenomenon. Yeah. So I'm not remembering now the exact statistics that I quoted in the book, but broadly, what is a very interesting phenomenon is when um, you look at either psychological or physical pain, Surveys where you you know give a bunch of questionnaires worded in sensitive ways to account for you know differences in values or subcultures etc. Um, what what you find is that people living in the United States are among the least happy people in the world, the most depressed and anxious people in the world, and the people experiencing the most physical pain in the world. And this is a surprise, right? Because we have more access to mental health care treatment than anywhere in the world. We consume some 80% of the world's hydrocodone, a highly potent opioid, even though we constitute 5% of the world's population. Now, we could get it to go down that road about how opioid essentially, uh, you know, um, uh, supports the argument in Dopamine Nation that repeated use of a highly reinforcing substance or behavior causes more pain because that's what opioids do if taken habitually over time for pain. Uh, but but the larger you know message here is that we're clearly getting something horribly wrong about how to have a flourishing existence in the modern world as well as how to treat uh, psychological and mental suffering. Um, because there is a dominant mode in psychiatry and psychology today that says, if you are feeling any kind of pain, you should immediately make yourself even more comfortable and remove even more, remove pain from your life, make yourself more comfortable. And yet our best attempts to do that are not leading where, where we, we want to go. So for example, even just uh, global happiness surveys from you know prior to the year 2000 what what we saw was that as countries got wealthier this is prior to 2000 as countries got wealthier around the world people seemed to get happier gee that makes a lot of sense right nobody wants to live in poverty but for about the last 20 years there it's been some kind of tipping point and the wealthier the country the less happy people are the more anxious the more depressed and the more in physical pain well, I did. I just pulled up that 
uh, statistic because I think I mean it's very interesting. It's worth reading that. Okay, thirty-four uh, percent of Americans said they felt pain often or very often, compared to nineteen percent of people living in China. 18% of people living in Japan, 13% of people living in Switzerland, and 11% of people living in South Africa. So the question is, why in a time of unprecedented wealth, freedom, technological progress, and medical advancement, do we appear to be unhappier and in more pain than ever? Which you pointed to, but I think that that is just a very fascinating um, study and statistic. Yeah, and it really this is a question, right? Like, what is going on? And so the hypothesis is that it is the excess of highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that we were not evolved for that's actually leading to a kind of chronic dopamine deficit. Right. right. There's. I, I think this is an, an interesting term and worth bringing in, but you talk in the book about, I mean, briefly, something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia? Hyperalgesia, yeah. Algesia, okay. And I I have so many aches, and I wonder if it's connected to algesia, but uh, more generally, just dopamine-induced, because I'm I'm not... I I mean, I don't take opioids, so... But I think that's the general hypothesis. Right, so the idea, you know, the idea in giving opioids liberally for pain, which started... At the end of the 1990s, in response to a huge uh, promotional campaign by Purdue and others, was to alleviate the rising rates of pain in an aging population or people living with chronic pain conditions. But instead, what happened is that people seemed to, over time, uh, experience more and more pain. And now we see many otherwise healthy young people coming in with pain all over their bodies for no identifiable reason. Um, and so again, you know, the, it's hard to know exactly what is going on, but but the hypothesis is that it's actually the ways in which we are insulated from pain, detached from our bodies, not moving our bodies in the way that they were meant to be moved, not connecting brain and body, so that we've got this busy, busy brain uh, trying to figure out what the body is doing. The body is sitting there all day, not doing anything. And then a brain that gets really confused by that and reads all kinds of sensory signals as pain signals. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this, I mean, you have these diagrams in your book with like pain gremlins. I don't know. Maybe they're, go- I think they're gremlins, not goblins, but there's a, a it's called a seesaw, right? I was going to call it a teeter totter. Yeah, no, but that's, that's good. Either one. Yeah. I think it's called a seesaw, but there's a mechanism in our brain that contributes toward this tilt uh, toward the pain size, pain side of the of the seesaw after we have a flood of dopamine. And maybe I mean, we started off with a little bit of uh, neuroscience, but what is the the mechanism that contributes to this uh, tottering of the seesaw? Right. So this is called the opponent process theory, and it's based on a lot of information and science in the past 50 to 75 years showing that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of this balance. So imagine that when the balance is at rest, it's level with the ground. That represents our pleasure pain reward system when it's at rest, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the opposite. And there are certain rules governing the balance. And the first is that the 
balance wants to stay level, and our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance with any deviation from neutrality. And the way that our brains do that is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus is. So when we use an intoxicant, releases dopamine in the reward pathway, the balance tilts to the side of pleasure, but then these gremlins, which represent neuroadaptation, hop on the pain side to bring it level again. They like it there, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the after effect, that moment of wanting to read uh, one more chapter in my romance novel. But if I wait long enough, and if I'm not yet addicted, the gremlins hop off, the homeostasis is restored. But the second rule of, of the balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar highly reinforcing stimulus, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, and that after effect to pain gets stronger and longer until essentially those gremlins multiply. Now they fill up this whole room. They're camped out on the pain side of the balance. And now we're in a chronic dopamine deficit state, which essentially just means we've changed our hedonic or joy set point. Now we need to do that behavior, not to feel good and get high, but just level the balance. And when we're, we're not using, we're walking around uh, with a balance tilted to the side of pain. And to me, that's a really helpful metaphor for understanding what happens in the brain as we get addicted, why people with severe addiction will relapse, even after they can see that their lives are so much better when they're not using it. It's because those gremlins don't go get off right away. Right. So if we've been using that substance or behavior for for weeks to months to years, it may take weeks to months to years for the brain to really fully heal. And in some cases, the plasticity to do so may be lost, which means that now you've got kind of a permanent uh, dopamine deficit state. So it's it's a way to sort of understand that whole process and how it gets broken by a world in which uh, dopamine is released so much and so quickly in response to these manufactured uh, kinds of stimulants of all sorts um, that that our brain, you know, really gets can get permanently damaged from the experience. I find this story uh, so compelling, just also because it meshes with my own experience. But to to recapitulate to make sure that I'm totally on the same page and my listeners are as well. So the neuroadaptation or the process of neuroadaptation described by the opponent process theory that is uh, figuratively embodied by your pain gremlins, it results in when the, the seesaw goes way up because you're very happy with uh, your flood of dopamine. After that, the pain gremlins jump on, it goes all the way down. And they pile on and pile on until eventually you're in this perpetually negative state. And then when you don't have your uh, drug of choice, uh, which at this point is just getting you to a state of equilibrium, that's when you feel at your worst because there's nothing to um, counterbalance the pain gremlin. So for me, I mean, when I was like at my worst binge eating, if I would stop doing that, that's when I would feel at my absolute worst. And it's because nothing is fighting off those pain gremlins. Exactly. You said it beautifully. And and so when people get into recovery, what I explained to them is now you're going to be taking that weight off the pleasure side. With those gremlins that you've accumulated on the pain side, they're going to slam you down to the side of pain. You're going to experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior. Which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. 
And that typically goes on for 10 to 14 days in terms of the acute withdrawal before it starts to abate, before the gremlins get the memo, oh, wait a minute, we're not getting this exogenous source of dopamine, time to hop off the balance and for homeostasis or healthy dopamine levels to be restored. I'm, I'm right now, it's occurring to me that you were, you had a patient who was, I think, a high schooler and addicted to cannabis. And you said to her that you wanted her to stop smoking for a month because that was the, the minimal sort of safe duration to reset the seesaw. I'm wondering if you ever encounter patients who have a particularly intractable addiction where their brain just doesn't want to go back to normal. And if that is the case, how the how you deal with that? Perhaps um, this is where some of the pharmaceuticals enter. Yeah, so we do see that all the time, right? Because the people who have that level of addiction will be the people who either come to us for help, relative brings them in, or they have severe consequence professionally or with the law, so that kind of mandates them coming in. And um, what we find is that even in those individuals, if they are able to abstain from their drug of choice for four weeks, um, the majority of them will start to feel substantially better. Of course, they're not going to be all the way healed and their addiction isn't cured because we think of it as a chronic relapsing and remitting disease. One way to imagine that is that these gremlins once created, they may hop off, but they don't entirely disappear. They're waiting in the wings, eager to hop on again. And there's no buildup period, right? Now you don't have to multiply the gremlins. They already exist and they hop on. Um, and we see that clinically. We see that also with imaging. Um, it, when we, you know, my colleagues looking at how recovery happens in the brain and noting that it, there are permanently damaged areas. So the way that we have to deal with that is often by higher level of care. So putting, you know, having people go to a residential treatment facility, for example, where they don't have access to their drug. Um, can be a lifesaver, you know, for many people. I mean, there's so many jokes and denigration of rehab, but I can tell you as an addiction treatment psychiatrist, I'm very grateful for uh, residential treatment because some people just literally cannot stop on their own. Um, we have medicines that we can use. The classic example is opioid agonist therapy, which is to say using an opioid like methadone or buprenorphine to treat an opioid addiction. And you, it seems very counterintuitive but what we think, you know, again, going back to this metaphor is that sometimes even prolonged abstinence will not, in some people's brains, get those gremlins to hop off, which means that, you know, people are constantly using up all their energy managing cravings. And so they really can't move forward in their lives. But if we give them a long-acting opioid like methadone or buprenorphine, it allows them to restore homeostasis so that they can engage in other aspects of their life and in their recovery. Um, and there are other medicines that we we use to help with that. There's also, you know, very commonly um, spiritual pathways. So a lot of people in in recovery um, get there, especially the most severely addicted through through spiritual pathways. Um, often through the twelve steps, this notion of higher power. Of course, we don't know exactly how that works, but we know phenomenologically that it can be very helpful. Maybe by activating other parts of the brain. Uh, that allow uh, people to um, to modulate the, these reward circuits, or maybe you know, maybe it's some other type of intervention. Who knows? Hmm. Well, just to put a a bow on this 
aspect of our conversation. I am wondering then, so you brought up at the beginning this biopsychosocial bio model of addiction. So obviously there are going to be social factors that contribute to relapse, but psychologically, biologically, I'm guessing that the way that we can understand the tendency to relapse is through this picture of the seesaw. The withdrawal symptoms just become so unbearable to the addict that in order to get back to equilibrium, they have to return to their substance. Yeah, I think there are sort of three ways to think about the biological mechanisms. One of them is the one you identified, the way that exposure itself to a highly reinforcing drug or behavior changes our brain over time that gets us caught on this hedonic treadmill or addiction vortex. The other way is the uh, the inborn or innate inherited vulnerability to addiction. So we don't all come into this world with equal amounts of vulnerability. There are some people who really are much more vulnerable to the problem of appetitive control than others. And those individuals will struggle with addictions to all kinds of things. They will get into recovery from one addiction only to find that it transitions to another addiction. Those are the most severely addicted among us for whom this modern ecosystem is incredibly challenging. I talk about them as modern day prophets for the rest of us because as a matter of survival, people with recovery from severe addictions have had to figure out how to navigate this world. I also, I, I also hypothesize that, you know, in whatever thousands, millions of years ago, probably just hundreds of years ago, people with the inherited addiction vulnerability were probably the most valuable members of the tribe because they were willing to work harder, walk further uh, to get, you know, a, find the berry bush or get water or find a mate. So what was once very advantageous and therefore conserved through evolution is now a bit of a liability. But if you can channel it in the right way, people in recovery from severe addictions turn out to be some of the most amazing people you will ever meet. So it can still be a positive um, and not necessarily a, a negative. And then the third way is some sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, other co-occurring factor that's not like an addiction vulnerability, but another co-occurring factor that contributes to addiction or vulnerability, and that's things like um, co-occurring mental illness. So we know that people uh, with uh, co-occurring anxiety, bipolar disorder, uh, depression, uh, schizophrenia, they have rates of addiction that are much higher than the general population. And that's probably because they're turning to these behaviors as a way to manage their psychiatric symptoms. Um, some of them will realize quickly that it doesn't work. Uh, you know, the, the more you use a substance or behavior in an, addic in an addictive way, the, the worse the outcome of your mental illness. But nonetheless, it's a doorway that gets people into using the substance, uh, which for some people then leads to a co-occurring addiction. Hmm. Well, I think that at this point, we've talked a lot about the sort of negative dimensions of addiction and maybe the, you might call them the diagnostic dimensions. But at this point, we should probably turn toward the more positive things like recovery. And how, I mean, there are, there are lots of tools in the toolkit, but for a start, how does understanding this balance between pain and pleasure provide us with at least a scheme of sorts, regardless for regardless of just what the addiction is, 
for tackling that addiction? Yeah, I think it provides a schema in the sense that it explains what's going on in the brain and it suggests the intervention, which is to say that we need to abstain from our drug or behavior of choice long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. So that really is the beginning, the entry point, both uh, to be being able to enjoy other things again uh, beyond our addiction, um, as well as to be able to have insight. Because one thing that's, that happens in the brain as we're chasing dopamine is we lose the ability to see true cause and effect. And we, we really don't see it. I don't like the word rationalization because it it, it it implies that we're trying to convince ourselves of something when in fact there's no convincing necessary because we really don't see that this substance or this behavior is causing ourselves and or other people harm until we stop for long enough to restore a level balance, kind of get our prefrontal cortex talking to our nucleus accumbens in a way that allows us to sort of see what the gremlins are doing and manage them. So I had a great, uh, I had, I love your cat. He's so much fun. Um, I, I'm actually addicted to your cat. <laughs> um, so I had a great uh, reader of Dopamine Nation who wrote in and said that he found the, the pleasure pain balance metaphor and gremlins so helpful. He was trying to quit smoking as whenever he would experience a cravings for a cigarette, he would just imagine those gremlins hopping up and down on the pain side of the balance. He said, I know it's really silly, but I just think I'm going to beat you gremlins. And so I think that kind of frame can be really helpful, especially in a culture that's telling us, you know, you know, pursue pleasure, uh, don't stress yourself out, you know, a rest, uh, eat a cupcake. Uh, because what I didn't, what we didn't talk about yet, but which is equally important, just this idea of hormesis which is to say that intentionally pressing on the pain side of the balance with things like exercise, ice-cold water immersion, prayer, meditation, anything that requires effortful investment of you know some physical or mental endurance will actually get those gremlins to switch over on the pleasure side, and we will reset our reward pathways um, by paying for it, uh, paying for our dopamine up front. So all of this informs a slightly different intervention to what ails us than if we didn't have this conceptualization of how we process pleasure and pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With regard to hormesis, I was amazed that one of these patients that you've treated, I think he was, uh, maybe it was alcohol and cocaine or just cocaine, but one of the tools that he used for overcoming his addiction was these cold water baths at which I know you were on Rogan. Rogan is a, a huge fan of those baths. Uh, but what amazes me about that is how much I absolutely hate them and could not ever imagine uh, loving them. Our brains are all just so different. Yes, you and me both. I actually cannot stand cold water. I have tried and people will say, oh, at first it shocks you, but then the longer you're in it, it starts to feel good. And then afterwards, you know, you get this kind of euphoric high. That is not what happens to me, which again, I think powerfully speaks to the inter-individual variability, how complex our brains are, how there are these basic mechanisms that are similar, but they're slightly tweaked, you know, and slightly different between us, which by the way, is probably also um, an evolutionary mechanism that's advantageous, right? If you had a tribe where everybody was going for the exact same berry bush, that would not be that good an idea. 
But if you had some people who really like berries and other people who like bison and other people who were looking for, you know, other people, um, that that's a better, that, that sort of ensures that as a collective, you will get all the things that you need. Hmm. Well, okay. So we have hormesis. There is another tool for dealing with addiction that, I mean, it's really a, a family of tools, probably in the same way that hormesis is, but it's called self-binding. And I hadn't heard that terminology before. I think we're all probably uh, intuitively familiar with the idea, but what is self-binding? So self-binding is a way to create both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. Um, you know, I use the classic myth of Odysseus, who was traveling through this the channel where, you know, these sort of mermaid-like creatures would sing and, you know, cause the the sailors to shipwreck and die. And so Odysseus said to his crew, I want you to put uh, beeswax in your ears so that you don't hear it, so we can go through the passageway. And he said, for myself, I want you to bind me to this mass, and if I try to break free, bind me tighter. Because he wanted to hear it. And there's an interesting sort of epilogue to that myth that I didn't know before sort of researching it more closely, which is the reason that Odysseus wanted to hear uh, the sirens was so that he could tell the story about it later. Uh, because the true conquering of any behavior is being able to then narrate that experience uh, as a, a kind of way to understand. That's a deep therapeutic truth yes. there. We're coming full circle to our <laughs> narrative thing. But anyway, what it basically says is that, you know, it, if we rely on willpower alone, we none of us will be successful in this endeavor, especially living in a world that is completely saturated with uh, dopamine releasing substances and behaviors. We must self-bind. We must create these barriers. And there are a million ways to do it. Not carrying our, uh, you know, our smartphone around with us, deleting apps, um, you know, making it go grayscale so it's less potent not having alcohol or potato chips or ice cream in the house, getting rid of your Kindle so that you can't easily download uh, free, you know, pornography from Amazon. Uh, all of these things are ways to like respect that willpower is not an unlimited resource and that we're living in this incredibly um, titillating environment. You know, in some ways, the, pin the pinnacle of capitalism and the capitalist system is to turn us all into addicts. And if we don't, uh, push against that intentionally and in advance, we, we will not, none of us make it. Well, I pulled up a, another quote from the book, Th this time not yours, but uh, you quoted Immanuel Kant's Metaphysics of Morals. And he, he wrote, when we realize that we are capable of this inner legislation, the natural man feels himself compelled to reverence for the moral man in his own person. And this related to self-binding. And I thought it was a very nice point that self-binding can also promote self-esteem, which I imagine really tremendously furthers its capacity for supporting abstinence and aiding in recovery. Because one, one dimension of addiction that we haven't talked about, but that goes hand in hand with some of those four C's is the sense of helplessness that an addict has, because I know that I certainly felt that. I mean, that's definitive of binge eating. I mean, not being able to 
control yourself and by successfully self-binding yourself, even though, I mean, self-binding doesn't really have a positive connotation. It doesn't sound <laughs> like a good thing. Except for but, Kant, Kant can turn it into that. Yeah, yeah. But by successfully doing that and mastering yourself, it definitely improves your self-esteem, which is helpful for, for your own efficacy as an agent in overcoming the addiction. Yeah, that's super insightful for you because this comes up all, that's super insightful of you because this comes up all the time in clinical care where patients in recovery will say, I feel like I'm a grown up for the first time. I feel like I can, you know, um, actually express my thoughts and feelings and I don't have to be ashamed of them. There's so much shame, you know, in addiction. Uh, but, but this kind of feeling like, um, yeah, like you're, you know, you, you can rely on yourself and be confident in yourself as an agent in the world. And that all comes with recovery in a really um, powerful and meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And one other binding technique, I mean, I think the drug that you mentioned earlier was bu buprenorphine. Is that how it's Buprenorphine, yeah, it's an opioid. Bu buprenorphine. Yeah, these are all and very hard to say. <laughs> yes, yes. So there are, I mean, I, maybe it's not self-binding, but it is a a bind, you might consider it a binding technique. But there are some other drugs that you talk about in the book. I think uh, disulfirium is maybe one of them. And then uh, naltrexone, I think, was the other. And I'm wondering if any of these drugs, as I recall, maybe naltrexone was the one that might best fit this bill, if they are effective binding techniques for people who have addictions that are not to very specific substances like opioids or alcohol, whether they can be used for somebody who has a uh, food addiction or a vampire novel addiction or something like that. Yeah, great. So now Trexone is an opioid receptor blocker. Okay. And we make our own endogenous opioids. And when we take naltrexone, we essentially block those receptors. So now Trexone is FDA approved to treat opioid addiction, which makes sense, right? When you're blocking that opioid receptor and you take something like heroin or oxycontin, it can't bind the receptor. In it. It's inert. It doesn't work. Interestingly, it's also FDA approved to treat alcohol addiction because alcohol is partially mediated through our endogenous opioid system. So what happens when people now take naltrexone and they drink alcohol is that they will report that it's not as reinforcing for them. So instead of wanting to drink the whole six-pack, they just want one beer, and then they can kind of stop. So again, helping them with that appetitive control. Now, Trexone has also been shown to help with cravings for alcohol. And the way that we speculate it works is that even when people get cravings for a drug, they get a little bit high. There's a little release of dopamine, followed by a little mini dopamine deficit state, which drives the cravings. If we block the receptor with naltrexone, that means thinking about the drug doesn't give as much of that euphoric recall so that even the kinds of the little high we get from the trigger are reduced, which means that we also don't get into that craving mode. And yes, there have been lots and lots of studies looking at naltrexone for other types of compulsive overconsumption, from gambling to sex to food addictions to probably many more um, you know, that I haven't named. It's, it's a very 
it's a well-tolerated drug. Uh, there's a lot of inter-individual variability in terms of efficacy, even within the approved indications. But for people for whom it works, it tends to be uh, helpful, if even very helpful. What I think is even more fascinating is that naltrexone is being used for some people with chronic pain. So not people are who, who are addicted, but people who have chronic pain, because by binding that opioid receptor, what we're effectively doing is telling our system, hey, we don't have enough endogenous opioids. It's time for the opioid factories to make more. And by doing that, that can create a kind of a natural mechanism for pain relief. Hmm. Now, when I spoke with your colleague in psychiatry, David Spiegel, we went into a variety of therapeutic treatment modalities, mainly because we were comparing them with hypnotherapy, but we also compared them to pharmaceutical interventions. And I'm wondering how you see pharmaceutical interventions compared to therapeutic, or th I think you'd probably want to call them therapeutic interventions for addiction, when you would want to use one, when you would want to use the other. And my first guess is if part of therapy isn't just about overcoming this addiction, but also helping the person, you would want to be trying therapy first because maybe going back to Kant again, you're trying to one further self-understanding and then self-esteem. But then at some point that might just not be powerful enough if there are an enough and sufficiently ferocious gremlins on the seesaw. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I'll start by answering, start start by saying that I do probably have a bias or an intuition that something that's hard-earned is longer-lasting behaviorally and neurologically. Uh, and psychotherapy and other psychosocial interventions take more time it's a form of slow medicine. Uh, and so that doing it that way uh, is preferred. Uh, uh, that's my probably my bias. Um, but my intuition is that it's, it's also more permanent, longer lasting. I want to emphasize, however, that every clinical day of the week, I prescribe medications. I use that tool all the time. And then in the real world, what we end up uh, you know, giving patients is based more on what they're willing to do and what they can pay for or have access to based on their insurance, et cetera, than what we think is the idealized version of what they should and could do. So for example, there are many people that I think would really benefit from psychotherapy. It's very hard to find an individual psychotherapist and it's difficult to pay for that kind of treatment. So then we're kind of stuck with having to use pharmacologic interventions, maybe where it's not even the ideal. In the ideal world, Every patient would have access to all of those different interventions, biological and also a psychosocial, because I think at the end of the day, uh, what works for one person isn't going to work for another. And we want to be able to have, you know, to, to fine tune it and individualize it as well as combine. So we'll use, you know, the best treatments are probably the ones that combine the pharmacologic with the psychosocial, especially for the most severely addicted. Hmm. Now, you have this bias towards slow medicine uh, because because what what you said or the way you put it is what's harder earned is longer lasting. And I also definitely have that intuition. It makes sense to me. And maybe though your 
agnostic on this topic, but I wonder how you feel about the rising popularity of and research into medically overseen psychedelic treatment for addictions, because I just have the sense, I mean, there is, I hear about it so much that a lot of it is, ha I mean, maybe this is my bias. I think a lot of it just has to be totally overblown and a product of our tendency to just want a quick fix. And people have this dream now that a, a dose of mushrooms or eight doses supervised by a therapist is going to cure all their problems. I agree with you. Um, and it is a fact that the media hype has far outstripped the evidence. The evidence is very preliminary. And if you look, in fact, at the evidence for treatment of mental health disorders, it, it's not robust um, and especially not robust for uh, psychedelics. So things like psilocybin in the treatment of depression, there's a New England Journal of Medicine study compar comparing psilocybin to Alexapro, which is an FDA-approved serotonin reuptake inhibitor, finding that they're pretty much comparable in terms of efficacy, which means that psilocybin is not a breakthrough medicine, right? It's not going to solve our mental health crisis. Furthermore, we know that these are potentially uh, very dangerous drugs and that people can have full-blown bad trips and end up you know, ending their lives um, under those circumstances. And the more access we have, the more we're seeing those types of very bad outcomes. Whereas I have never heard of that with, you know, an SSRI. I mean, there's, you know, some sense that it can contribute to suicidality, but not psychosis and, you know, sudden violence. Um, the, the, but even sort of phenomenologically, I have a real problem with the way that these medications are being proposed um, to work, which is that they're not being put forward by the scientific community as treatment by themselves. Uh, and, and, you know, that that's it's problematic in its own way, but they're actually being recommended as a way to facilitate psychotherapy. And the reason that I that really bothers me is because what we're saying to people is, you need a drug to have a human attachment. And part of the huge work that we do in addiction medicine is treating, is trying to educate people about how to have intimate human connections without using drugs. Because many, many patients and people in general don't know how to connect with other people unless they're under the influence. So I just think the whole framework is highly problematic. Also, you know, when you look at sort of the spirituality scales, because what, what goes along with this is this idea that people can reach some kind of new spiritual uh, awakening through, uh, through this process. But if you actually look at the way they're measuring spirituality and the spirituality scales, it sounds a heck of a lot like getting high, right? Do you feel like, you know, you have, you're elevated and that you feel one with the universe? It's like, yeah, that's how people feel when they get high. I mean... So, you know, what are we actually measuring there when we talk about spirituality? Plus, is it really changing behavior for the long term? Do people, they might feel more spiritually connected, but are they actually living more spiritual lives? So I think there's so much here. I'm all for, you know, uh, rational and slow and measured research and media coverage that is tempered 
Uh, but, but the problem is that by getting out there and just saying this is, a, you know, we'll give you a spiritual awakening or it'll cure your depression or your PTSD, you know, before you know it, you've got the TikTok video and then you've got all kinds of people microdosing themselves. You know, who, I mean, that's just so scary. Yeah, I'm really glad that I asked you this because <clears throat> I found all of that quite interesting, especially that comment you made toward the end about the way that they are measuring how spiritual people feel. Yeah, that is just what it <laughs> what it's like to be high. And this is also totally anecdotal, but everybody I know that has gone to Peru for the ayahuasca journey or anything like that and comes back saying that they're totally transformed. They may say that they're totally transformed and they may keep that up for a few weeks, but it quickly goes right back to exactly what they were like beforehand, which goes back to, and again, this is obviously all a conjecture, but it goes back to your initial hunch that what is harder earned lasts longer. Mm -hmm. But like you, and I think this is what I hear, I'm I'm totally, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm totally open to new forms of treatment that might include some of these drugs. But I'm also skeptical of the levels of efficacy I hear on these podcasts. It's also, you have to question the interest because the people who are trumpeting the drugs are the people who were already taking them. And so in love with them, I mean, not to say that there aren't researchers who have never taken them themselves and are much more sober about it. But I think that because of who it's coming from, it often needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there, I, I don't know of any other area of pharmacologic research where the people doing the research and profiting from the companies that may ultimately make and distribute uh, these drugs are also people who regularly do them themselves or have done them. Uh, so I think there's a lot to um, be skeptical of. Okay. And then maybe toward, I mean, we're, we're finishing up soon. One other thing that we haven't touched on yet, though, maybe I alluded to it being in Dopamine Nation at the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about the social factors that contribute to addiction, uh, there are social factors that can help treat addiction as well. So maybe you'd like to talk about those a bit. Yeah. So um, there's lots of evidence that human connection um, and having you know meaningful uh, relationships with other people is protective. Um, there's lots of evidence that um, belonging to a religious organization and actively participating in that organization is protective for the development of addiction with the exception potentially of being an Irish Catholic um, when it comes to alcohol addiction. So this is sort of you know, interesting data in general, it's protective, but there are some silos uh, where it's, it's not necessarily protective. Um, and that Irish Catholic thing is probably a combination of you know, cultural mores around drinking as well as maybe some innate um, biological um, inherited vulnerability to alcohol. Um, you know, there are all kinds of sociological protective factors. So, you know, having meaningful work, um, you know, living as part of a functional family, having a close, sober social network, uh, these are all protective factors. So, you know, kind of the things you would imagine. 
And another key point or topic as we discuss, or as you discuss recovery in the book is honesty and going along with honesty, shame. And how do these two things um, figure into the recovery process? Well, one of the things I've learned from my patients over many years is that the ones who get into and maintain long-term recovery are the ones who have learned that they can't lie. And it's not just that they can't lie about their uh, their addiction and their use. They can't lie about anything. Uh, they can't even lie about like you know why they were late for a meeting. They have to be radically honest, um, which got me really curious. Like, what is that phenomenon? You know, how does that relate to compulsive overconsumption? And I speculate in the book a bunch of different reasons why, including the possibility that um, intentionally engaging in truth-telling might actually bolster the prefrontal cortex, which functions like the brakes on the car. And there's some um, inferential uh, evidence to suggest that, that that may be the case, as well as the fact that um, truth-telling, I think, creates socially creates a plenty mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset. And I use for evidence that the famous marshmallow experiment, where kids were told, if you don't eat this marshmallow for 15 minutes, you'll get a second one. But there was another experiment where uh, the kids were told, half the kids were told, you know, if you ring this bell within those 15 minutes, a researcher will come back. Um, And the other half were told the same thing. But in one of those groups, the researcher actually came back. And the other group, they didn't come back when the kid rang the bell. And in in the group where the kids were lied to, they were much more likely to eat the marshmallow before the 15 minutes was up. So this idea that when we can't trust the people around us, to do the things that they said they were going to do, it puts us into this kind of scarcity mindset or survival mode where, of course, uh, we're thinking, I'm going to eat this marshmallow right now because who knows if I'm really going to get the second one when they come back. So, you know, different uh, sort of levels of um, trying to understand that phenomenon. And then I have a whole section on shame. To me, shame is really interesting. Uh, shame is very pervasive in addiction and can be really a barrier to getting into recovery. The overwhelming shame feel about these behaviors, which then perpetuate the addictive behaviors. But I make the point that we wouldn't want to be without shame. Shame is a highly pro-social emotion. If we didn't experience shame about these behaviors, we wouldn't be motivated to change them. Um, so it's it's figuring out what to do with shame and how to make it positive so that it propels positive behavior change. And I think that really depends on what others do with our shame. Right. If we sort of admit to some shameful activity and we're shunned for it, that's likely to uh, contribute to these ongoing maladaptive behaviors. But if we're actually embraced for it, like we are in, like people are in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, then we can really leverage shame as a way to promote intimacy and propel behavior change. So I, I talk a lot about that. Well, Anna, I mean, this has been so fun. I, you mentioned that you had listened to a few episodes of the podcast beforehand. So a lot of these episodes can be very abstract and technical. So I loved, I, I love the opportunity. I love this opportunity to talk about something practical, important that I mean, can touch everybody's life and certainly has touched mine. So thanks again so much for talking with me. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. I was quite nervous about this interview because I, you know, I, in watching the other interviews and thought, oh man, is he going to ask me some like really hard philosophical questions and, and like use some of this, you know, 
free energy principle? I'm like, I, I have no idea. You know, I, I might not even understand the question. But uh, thankfully, you kept it at my level. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so. Mm-hmm.